this semester, and that's called the literary series. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world physicists tell us, but as far as the literary series is concerned, there is no uncertainty. Every semester we are here, gathered together eagerly, listening to some wonderfully creative and talented people. And that's really possible because of a great group, our guests would love to know about that, called the SMC Associates. The community and the college come together for a great partnership. And their philosophy is, say yes to all adventures, and I'm happy to oblige. But they are only willing to support generously because, because of you. There's probably just two or three chairs vacant, unoccupied. You have voted with your feet for the last 10 years. And therefore, the SNC Associates have no hesitation in supporting all kinds of strange adventures that we have had together. It's been fascinating. We are in week four of our semester, and I can tell you from personal experience that the principle of entropy is alive and well. I'm referring, of course, to my classes. But this morning, I would like to offer you, the audience, and our speaker, Professor Sean Carroll from Caltech. Another principle, the principle of aesthetics, whose unerring and certain message is that as the universe unfolds, in whichever direction it may be going, the idea of beauty evolves, enriching our experiences. That's the law of aesthetics as propounded by Vishwanatha. And the literary series is a testament to that because it's people like Professor John Carroll and the others who have been on as part of the series and who are going to be part of the series who helped to explore the world around us and make us aware of things we may not have noticed and thereby enrich our experience. So whether you call it order or disorder, it's a richer experience and we are all richer for that. Professor Carroll is a distinguished uh, physicist at Caltech, involved in a number of different research projects involving astronomy, cosmology, and what physicists are called dark matter and dark energy. He has a BS from Villanova. Interestingly, his minor, in addition to physics, was philosophy. He has a PhD from Harvard, Astronomy, and the title of his dissertation was Cosmological Consequences of Topological and Geometric Phenomena in Field Theories. Simple stuff. <laughs> in addition to having lectured at MIT and being a member of uh, several committees at uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he has also written very easy to understand articles, papers, with the title The Einstein Equivalence Principle of the Polarization of Radio Galaxies. 
another one, bosonic physical states in N equals 1 supergravity. Also, he has written a book called Space, Time, and Geometry. As part of his distinguished scholarly record is the date 10th of March 2010, when he crossed the event horizon and entered the multiverse of Stephen Colbert's nation <laughs> and survived that experience. I'm a student of literature whose last math class was in high school. But as I was reading this book called From Eternity to Here, Professor Carroll's most recent book, I was struck by this paragraph which I want to share with you. Science is about answering hard questions. But it's also about pinpointing the right questions to ask. When it comes to understanding life, we are not even sure what the right questions are. We have a bunch of intriguing concepts that we are pretty sure will play some sort of role in an ultimate understanding and should be free energy, complexity, information. But we are not yet able to put them together into a unified picture. That's okay. Science is a journey in which getting there is, without question, much of the fun. Professor Sean Carroll. I've been told that this kind of works. Can, can the people in the back hear me? Yes. Okay, all right, tell me if I start fading away. We're fighting little microorganisms today. Uh, but thank you very much for inviting me here to Santa Monica College. I've been in LA for five years and I haven't made it here yet, so this is a great treat. Obviously a fantastic audience, which I appreciate very much. So how many people uh, heard about this because I mentioned it on Twitter? <laughs> a couple, that's good, you know, that's, that means that your the actual uh, SMC crowd is here, which uh, discombobulated me when I was reading the webpage and so forth, because my initials are SMC, and I kept like saying, why are they talking about me all the time? <laughs> the other discombobulation, of course, is that I'm talking about the origin of the universe and the arrow of time under the rubric of something called the literary lectures. Now, you might not have, you might not go through your life thinking about the origin of the universe or the arrow of time, and when you do, you might not connect them to each other, and when you do that, you might not connect it to literature in any way or anything literary at all. I will make a passing connection to literature, so remind me if I don't, ask a question, but the truth is that the arrow of time is going to do everything. Everything that we use to make sense of the universe depends on this thing called the arrow of time, and the arrow of time in turn depends on the origin of the universe. So I want to, it will be a success at the end of the lecture when you realize that when you're trying to understand the plot of some narrative structure, you realize it's all because of conditions at the Big Bang that any of this makes sense. But let's start a little bit easier with the notion of time itself. The first thing that people want to know when I start talking about time, write a book, give a lecture, whatever it is, what, what is this stuff that you call time? In fact, uh, St. Augustine famously wondered in his confessions, uh, I know what time is until you ask me, and then I know not. But uh, I kind of resist that attitude. I think that time is actually not that mysterious. There are aspects of it that are not that mysterious, but we go too far in saying, ooh, you know, what is all this? 
11.15 a.m., you all managed to get here in time for the lecture. We know how to use time in our everyday lives. What we don't understand is how it relates to the fundamental architecture of reality, and that's what I'm going to try to be getting at in this talk. So what my point will be that things that you thought were perfectly simple and straightforward about time are actually mysterious, and we are going to try to understand them. So here's something that's pretty straightforward. Some things in the universe happen over and over again in a repeatable, predictable way. This is how we tell time. One way of, de of, of defining uh, the passage of time is to say that time is what clocks measure. Now, that's not the best definition because you need to tell me what a clock is. And a clock is something that tells time, so you'll need success. Uh, but there is a non-trivial fact, not just a tautology, namely that the world is full of clocks. By which I mean a clock is something that does something over and over again, predictably compared to other clocks. Now that sounds still circular, but it's not. It means that there are things in the universe that do the same thing over and over again compared to each other. Every time the Earth revolves around the Sun, it rotates around its axis 365 and one quarter times. That's predictable. You can rely on it. The earliest way of telling time in the ancient world was, of course, through astronomy, through the motions of the planets and the stars. These days, we try to do better. We invent more and more precise ways of telling time, more and more precise ways of getting one thing to do something predictably, repeatably, compared to something else. We have wristwatches. This means that every time the hour hand goes around once, the minute hand goes around 12 times. That's the reliable fact that makes it a clock. If, as time goes up, physicists like to have time going up in diagrams, as you will notice. So as you go from April 10 to April 11 to April 12, the Earth revolves around its axis. Uh, a pendulum that swings back and forth once a second does so 864,000 times in a day. And a quartz crystal vibrates very, very reliably. The reason why quartz watches are more reliable than mechanical watches is because the vibration of quartz is predictable. Because it doesn't matter what the temperature is, what, what direction it's, it's putting in, what the pressure or the, or the humidity is. It's a reliable, repeatable thing. That's what allows us to measure the passage of time, how often something happens that we rely upon as a clock. A major step forward in this understanding was taken by this guy, Galileo. Long before he got in trouble for the Earth going around the sun business, uh, he was already a little bit of a rebel. He was going to church when he was a youth in Pisa. So he, his local church was the cathedral in Pisa, right next to the Leaning Tower. And uh, like many youths in church, he was bored. So instead of listening to the sermon, he was watching this chandelier. This is the chandelier in the Duomo in Pisa, rocking back and forth. Now you and I would see and go, oh, that's a pretty chandelier. But he was Galileo, right? He's not us. So Galileo starts thinking, you know, I've been here before. Sometimes the chandelier is just rocking a little bit. Sometimes it's a lot. But it always seems to take the same amount of time to go back and forth. Now, once again, even if we got to that point, we would go, wow, that's kind of freaky. But Galileo, being Galileo, said, I'm going to test this hypothesis. I'm going to invent the scientific method right here in this pew. So what he did was he counted the oscillations of the chandelier against his pulse. He used his heartbeat as a regular, repeatable clock. And he compared the heartbeat to the rocking of the chandelier, and he discovered what physicists now call the simple harmonic oscillator. Or, if you like, a pendulum. 
The reason why pendulums are appearing in grandfather clocks is because Galileo was right. No matter how far it's swinging, it takes the same amount of time. It moves more slowly if it's only swinging a little bit. It moves faster if it's swinging a lot, so it's a predictable amount of time. That was the first mechanical idea toward building a mechanical clock. So that's the easy part of time, telling time, getting to the lecture on time, understanding what someone means when they say the TV show is hours, is one hour long. We can do that. That's the easy part. And the mystery comes in when we compare time to space. Now, there's a whole story about Albert Einstein, which you're probably expecting right now, about how time and space are really two different aspects of the same thing. But this is not your typical physics lecture. I'm going to insist that time and space are actually different, because they are different in a very fundamental way. Here's a picture of a person in space. And the thing about space, if you leave you know, the Earth here, if you're floating out far away from the influence of any nearby objects, in space, all directions are created equal. If you're in orbit, if you're in your spacesuit, up, down, left, right, forward, backwards, there's no difference between these. There might be, you know, the Earth in some direction, but if you were doing a little physics experiment, if you were, you know, rocking something back and forth, it wouldn't matter how you rotated. All the different directions of space are completely equal. Time, on the other hand, obviously has a direction. In some sense, we use time much like space. When you want to come to this lecture, you need to give me two pieces of information, the time, 11.15 a.m., but also the location in space, the lecture hall in the humanities and social sciences. You need to give me time and space. That was the origin of Einstein's 